We rarely have breaking news on Life with GDPR, but today we have a recent case that caught your attention, and I thought it might be fun and instructive to explore. It involves uh, an Australian company, Singtel Optus, and you want to pick it up from there? And, and as This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the award-winning Life with GDPR. In this episode, we take up the case of an investigative report done by Deloitte for an Australian company and the mistakes made which allowed the report to go into evidence because there no, was no privilege attached. We use this as an explanation to talk about how you need to prepare for the inevitable data breach at your organization. I know you'll enjoy and appreciate this episode of the award-winning Life with GDPR. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Jonathan Armstrong for the award-winning Life with GDPR. Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Jonathan, we rarely have breaking news on Life with GDPR, but today we have a recent case that caught your attention, and I thought it might be fun and instructive to explore. It involves uh, an Australian company, Singtel Optus, and you want to pick it up from there? And and as you said it's breaking news at the moment. We don't know the full facts. We've only been told that the judge gave judgment for about a minute and said he'd come back with more reasons. But I think there are some general lessons here for GDPR and in particular for the handling of data breaches. So what do we know thus far? We know that Singteloptus uh, uh, had a data breach in 2022. We know that about 1.2 million people were affected by that data breach. And we know that about 100,000 of them, possibly more, have joined up together as part of a group action in response to that breach. So pretty large numbers and pretty large on a percentage basis when compared to other data breaches. And we also know that the uh, organization involved commissioned Deloitte to produce a report into that data breach. And the group action lawyers want it, and the company, as the Scots say, does not want to give it up. And so then it's been thrown over to the judge, really, to decide and I think perhaps unsurprisingly, the judges said this report isn't privilege. The claimant lawyers can have it. And presumably, they're going to now start and pick the bones of it. And it's going to come back to haunt the company. And one of the lessons to be learned here, I think, is there's a number of lessons. Firstly, you've always got to be careful when commissioning reports like this in, in this type of case. Because what can happen, I think, is that, the, is that privilege is hard to gain and easy to lose. So in most cases, I would say this, wouldn't I? You're going to need outside counsel involved, and you need to look carefully at who is commissioning the investigatory team. Now, there's a long history 
of big four accountancy firms claiming that all of their work is privileged. And in many jurisdictions, the simple answer to that has been no. And so it's highly unlikely that if you commission a big four accountancy firm or any investigator that isn't lawyers, you're going to be able to assert privilege in their report, particularly if the corporation has commissioned the report and not the external lawyers who are advising you. And even then, we know from some of the US cases that can be somewhat challenging. But one of the things that's going to lose you privilege, even if you've got it in the first place, is statements like that made, in this case, by the corporation's CEO. And so relatively soon after the breach, the CEO uh, made a statement in October 22 uh, when she said, we're going to make the report public in part to help others. And we've talked about this on these podcasts before, the need to rehearse for data breaches and the need to educate all of the breach team, including your CEO in many cases, to make sure that they give the right messages after a breach. And that's not only going to be don't promise to share reports because that might waive privilege. It's also going to be around how you describe the attack. So, for example, a lot of media spokesmen, a lot of CEOs go to language like saying, we've been the victim of a sophisticated nation-state cyber attack. Those words alone may well invalidate any insurance that you've got. We know that the Lloyd's rules changed in March. Many insurance policies have changed their wording over the last 18 months, two years or so after some earlier litigation. And even saying it's a sophisticated cyber attack of the type nobody could have predicted, again, might indicate that you're trying to imply that it's a nation state. And at the very least, that might delay payments. We know from stuff that's in the public domain, like the INS cyber attack, that oftentimes insurers will ask questions and that might delay payments and that might be fatal to the corporation and to your strategy. So, and then one last thing, if I may. Here, of course, privilege is also com complicated by the global nature of the corporation that was attacked. So an Australian entity with Singaporean owners. It's relatively common for reports like this to be shared with other entities. And of course, privilege is likely only to be in the hands of the relevant entity. If they share reports like this with the parent company, that also can be a waiver of privilege. So you've always got to look really carefully at stuff like this. If uh, I'm doing an investigation, for example, on behalf of ABC Limited in the UK, and ABC Limited is owned by ABC Inc. in the US, and ABC Inc. says, we want a copy of the report, can we have it? My answer's got to be no, because if the UK entity that has privilege shares it with the US entity, 
that wouldn't have the benefit of privilege, then there might be a waiver of privilege in that situation. Now, sometimes there is a structure that will help with that and, and enable privilege to be maintained, but that requires quite a lot of strategic thought. So I guess in terms of trying to pull these threads together, I think there are a number. First of all, you've got to have your litigation head-on whenever you're handling breaches. If it's a big breach, a threat of litigation is inevitable. So as if the data breach team didn't have enough to do already, it has to think about litigation, think about things like subject access requests, and have a strategy to deal with them real time as you're going through the initial 24 hours, 48 hours of this painful process. Secondly, you're going to have to construct the investigation in such a way as to preserve privilege if that's possible. That's likely to be a greater involvement for external counsel. It's likely to be things like not relying on pre-agreed contractual terms with the organization and its incident response providers. You can't do it by a call-off, a SOW call-off on a global contract, for example. You've got to look at the intricacies of all of that stuff to try and maintain privilege. Thirdly, don't let your CEO or anyone else in the organization do dumb things. If you're going to go public or you have to respond publicly, be very careful about what you're going to say. <clears throat> the right answer is not to say nothing in most cases because a vacuum is filled by speculation, which is unhelpful. So you've normally got to say something, but you've got to be moderate and considered in what you say. And as a general rule, most executives aren't very good at live interviews in this situation. It is a skill. Prepare in advance. Not meant to be an advert for us, but we do these data breach academies, which will include speaking in a simulated live TV experience in a real studio to a real journalist who's trying to trip you up. If you're going to be your corporation's spokesman in that type of crisis, practice. And you've also got to watch the international aspects as well. I know many of our listeners, and by the way, I've had some fantastic feedback recently that I want to thank people for, Tom. But I know that many of our listeners work in global corporations, and they've got this uh, conflicting situation all the time of corporate HQ, which might be in the, in the U.S., wants to know everything. But at the same time, you've got to balance that desire to know everything versus privilege. Uh, and then the last thing I'd say is ins the insurance market is tight. Insurance questionnaires are ever longer than they used to be. And the word on the street is that more insurers are declining cover after events than they used to. So if you have spent that money on a premium with a good insurance, don't blow it all away by doing something dumb if you're in the uh, middle of an attack. Jonathan, you may not tout the horn of cordery, but I certainly will, because the approach you have outlined is a holistic approach that it's not incident response, it's planning 
and having a strategy in place, literally starting with how can we prevent and then move to detect and then remediate. What does that sound like? Compliance program, except you've got it uh, in a much more holistic way all the way up to the head of the organization. But the other thing that struck me is that's why you're the guest and I'm the host, because you have a much more holistic view of this. I read this and thought, what an idiot lawyer. Now, perhaps that was unfair that the test for maintaining the attorney-client privilege is different in Australia, but I just have to note that in a hearing, the John Sheehan representing Signal Opus said, quote, the dominant purpose of the Deloitte report was to provide legal advice to the company's counsel, end quote. It strikes me he has waived the privilege with that statement to the court because if you have a dominant purpose, that means you have other purposes. And if you don't follow the strict rules of privilege, at least in the United States, and you may comment on this from the United Kingdom perspective, uh-huh. if a law firm hires Deloitte and the Deloitte reports to the law firm, you can have a privilege argument. You may choose to waive that, and that's, but that's your right. I'm not sure if that's the rules in Australia or not, but once you start saying, oh, yeah, we had lots of reasons for this report, and by the way, telling the legal department what happened was one of them, you just lost privilege. It seemed to me that that was a, a pretty basic mistake, and I hope they informed their client they were likely to lose that. But I was really intrigued by your, uh, I don't want to say academician, but academy approach, that it really is a soup to nuts preparation, and we have talked, or you have talked rather, and I've listened over these last several months about the planning that has to take place when the breach occurs, but the crisis communication is equally important, and what you disclose in the public arena not only has impact on multiple stakeholders, but, and you've talked about this before, the insurance brokers and the insurance coverage and what it might do to coverage going forward. So really, I think companies need to sit back and understand this is a very holistic approach is needed. It's not if, but it's when. And yes, quarterly compliance will pick up the phone and deal with a breach if you have a breach. But if you haven't prepared for a breach, you're going to be in a lot bigger world of hurt. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. And it is like muscle memory. And even if somebody's good in front of camera doesn't mean to say they've got the right skills to do this type of interview. In fact, I'd say from our experience, and we've done a lot of these simulations now, I'd almost, the people who perform better are the the people who are almost reluctant to do the interview in many cases. And And I think what it is, it's a, one of the worst performers we saw was a former broadcast journalist who'd gone in-house at the organization. And she said, yes, of course, I'm the natural for the interview, very much put herself forward. But I think she tried, as you would do if you're the interviewer, broadcast TV journalists the world over are told that you fill a vacuum, you fill a gap, you don't have dead air. And so if she didn't know the answer to a question, she just made something up um, because that made her and the organization, in her view, 
look authoritative and in control of the facts. But guess what? Making up facts in a crisis is not a great strategy. And even if you're giving what you think are the facts at that time, usually you've got to caveat it. If you're involved in something like ransomware, initially, most people in the organization will say, oh, data didn't leave the organization, as an example. I think statistically, I think from the latest Black Fog survey, don't quote me on this, 86% of ransomware does involve exfiltration. You've always got that disconnect at the start of a breach. You've got the IT guy saying, we caught it quickly enough, thank goodness nothing left. But statistically, the preponderance of ransomware attacks do include data leaving the organization. So you don't want to get ahead of the media by saying, let's reassure everybody, nothing left the organization, because almost certainly it did. If you say it didn't, you've done two dumb things. One, you've misstated the facts. And two, you've said our systems weren't good enough to find out what was going on. So you can make a terrible situation worse And I've seen corporations do that. Thankfully, I've mostly seen people do it in rehearsals behind closed doors with nobody else watching. And that's the place to make mistakes, not live on TV. It also strikes me, Jonathan, that you could potentially put yourself at odds with another type of regulator, such as the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, who may say your public statements on air are different than your public disclosures that you may or may not have made. So there's tax uh, additional line as well. Well, it turns out, Jonathan, that this story gave us lots and lots of lessons learned. Um, We're going to link to the Quarterly uh, Academy in the show notes for those who may want to check that out. And I look forward to continuing this conversation, Jonathan. Thanks very much, Tom. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. If you've enjoyed our podcast, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever great podcasts are listened to. We've linked to the quarterly compliance news alert on this case. So for more information, check out that news alert and the quarterly compliance site. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.